You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Caleb Wilkinson. Thanks, Aaron. Good morning, everyone. It's good to gather with you all to sing and give and pray and now sit under God's Word together. If you're new here and I haven't met you yet, my name's Caleb. I'm one of the pastors here and I uh, would love to meet you sometime. But, uh, but thanks for joining us this morning. It's an honor you are here with us. Well, we've been in a new ministry theme, learning to love cross-culturally. And before we jump into the book of Acts next Sunday, we've been in a mini-series we've titled The Beautiful Community, A Mess Worth Making. And last week we were in Ephesians and looked at what Ephesians 2 had to say about this. We, we, we looked at Ephesians because Ephesians really is, is th- exactly this. It's about the beautiful community, the mess worth making. So last week in Ephesians 2, we dredged up the portrait of our past disunity. Before Jesus, all of us were alienated from God and from his people. But then in Jesus, we've experienced the phenomenon of all phenomenon, the, the wonder of all wonders. We've, we've been reconciled to God as his reconciled people while this Unity is a present reality. Even now, King Jesus, our great peacemaker, is mending all fractures of all of his people, even as great as Jew and Gentile. And so currently, we're a part of this ongoing process of being and becoming his united family. Okay, this morning we're sticking with Ephesians and we're going to keep looking at this process of our unity, mainly how to protect this treasure. And maybe surprisingly, it's going to be the basic fundamentals that win the game. When I think of protecting treasure through the basic fundamentals, I'm taken back to a completely botched NBA championship game. Sorry if I'm speaking too close to the home of, of, of some of y'all, but it was 2014 and Tim Duncan Spurs were up against LeBron James and Dwayne Wade's Miami Heat. And the Spurs were up three games to two. Okay, it was game six and they were just one, way, one win away from the championship. Actually, it was closer than that. They were 28 seconds away. They were up by five. And the NBA officials actually began bringing the trophy onto the floor because they thought they had it. They wanted, they, they wanted to get, prepare the celebration in San Antonio. The only thing that the Spurs had to do was not mess it up. Don't blow it. Hold on. But they didn't. They completely botched it. And not through some like massive dramatic mistake, but... But free throws, a layup, defensive rebounds, the the basic fundamentals of basketball. The trophy was so close. It was on the floor. It was so close they could taste it. And they lost it like that. 
28 seconds. Well, we too have something exceedingly precious. We don't want to just squander like that. God's people have an identity, a belonging, and a purpose. We're participants in the greatest story ever known. We've been reconciled to God as his reconciled people and invited to step into the story by actually making his family unity visible for the watching world. Okay, this is certainly grand, much grander than an NBA trophy. But how do we do this exactly? The rest of the book of Ephesians, chapters 4 through 6, tell us. But we're just going to zoom in on uh, a part of it today. We're going to look at the same text that was used for our call to worship, Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. This is the turning point in, in, in the entire book, and it's here we'll see the fundamentals of the process of our unity, of how we're to step into the story and participate at the most basic level, which will be crucial as we seek to learn to love cross-culturally. Okay, read with me. Scripture should be on the screen, Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. This is God's word to us this morning. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the spirit of the unity in the bond of peace, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Friends, the grass withers, the flower of the field fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Amen? Amen. Listen, our our God is king, and his word is his scepter by which he rules his people. So therefore, every part of it, every part of his word places a claim on our lives. Every part. And so these very words I just read, these very words is God himself putting a claim on each of our lives here this morning. And I think the claim is this. Preserve the oneness Jesus gave through the practices of oneness Jesus lived. Preserve the oneness Jesus gave through the practices of oneness Jesus lived. We're going to look at at this backwards from the order of our text. First, we're going to look at the precious oneness we've we've been given and thus our, our need to preserve it. Then we're going to look at the basic practices of oneness. So first, the, the, the preservation of oneness, verses 3 through 6. Okay, it's really important to start this morning by grasping that oneness is present already. This word preservation matters. We're not called to produce oneness, but to protect 
oneness. We're, we already have this unity. We're, we're reconciled to God as his reconciled people. So we're, so we're not called to manufacture unity, but to maintain it. Not to create it, but to keep it. To, to preserve the oneness that already exists in Jesus. The, the word one is used in these three verses seven times. That's the number of perfection in the Bible. But whether that's the point or not, we should be struck by the mere repetition of this word one. It's used more here than in any other place in the Bible. And notice, the argument for our oneness is based on the Trinity itself. The the rationale is rich, and I I can't draw attention to each angle or connection now, but I I commend it to you for further study uh, and observation because it is super rich. But to summarize the main idea, in, in sort of the normal order we treat the Trinity, it goes something like this. First, there's one Father who creates the one family. There's only one Christian family because there's only one God and Father. He's above all and through all and in all. And that's not some pantheistic way to say God's in the chair. He's talking, the all there is his people. He's in his people. He's through his people. He's above his people, all of his children. Second, the one Lord Jesus creates the one faith, the one hope, the one baptism, because he's the object of all three of those. It's his work we trust in, his return we hope in, him himself who we're baptized into. And last, the one spirit creates the one body. The one body here refers to his church, the body of Jesus, made up of Jew and Gentile alike. And the unity it shares is due to the one spirit who indwells and animates each of his distinct and diverse people. The spirit is our common possession. The spirit is our common possession. So in other words, there can be only one Christian family, one Christian faith, hope, uh, and baptism, and one Christian body, because there's only one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our, our oneness is a reality overflowing from God himself. So you see, this text is shouting at us, our, our unity, our oneness is deep. It's seriously deep. This really just echoes what chapter 2 and 3 have been arguing about our unity. It's deep and it's serious, but, but it's also precious. Remember, it was purchased for the Father by Jesus' very own blood. And in chapter 3, it's called the mystery of the gospel, which just means that it's been God's plan all along to unite Jews and Gentiles to himself and, and to, to one another. Okay, this oneness is so precious that he's been working on it all along. You could say sort of like behind the scenes and is only now revealing it in Jesus. This oneness is like a, a family inheritance that 
your parents spend all their lives squirreling away to bestow on you. Or the family heirloom that's been passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation. What do you do with an inheritance? With a family heirloom? You guard it. You keep it. You preserve it. That's why verse 3 urges us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This, verse 3, is just describing the manner where to pursue the practices we're getting ready to look at. The original here for eager to maintain means to hurry, hasten. There's a sense here of being zealous, of, of doing every possible thing in one's power to protect the oneness. The, the NIV translation captures this sense really well. It says, make every effort to keep the unity. Make every effort to keep the unity. So don't forget as we move forward and kind of look at the practices that this sort of attitude is supposed to mark the practices. I don't, I don't think I'm saying it too strong. Um, a man named Marcus Bart expressed this, this so vividly. He, he said this, it's hardly possible to render exactly the urgency contained in the underlying Greek verb. Not only haste and passion, but a full effort of the whole man is meant, involving his will, sentiment, reason, physical strength, and total attitude. These words exclude passivity, quietism, a wait-and-see attitude, or a diligence tempered by all deliberate speed. Yours is the initiative. Do it now. You are to do it. I mean it. Such are the overtones of verse 3. The oneness we have is is precious, and so the preservation of it is serious. It requires all of our efforts. Guys, Paul really means it. Like, pay attention. He began with, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. As if they don't know that he's in prison writing to them. He's highlighting the fact that he's devoted to the same zeal he's calling them to share. He's devoted. He's in chains. That's how devoted he is. They were to see that the preservation of our oneness is no more serious than the oneness itself. Again, it's what Jesus was zealous about. This is what he prayed for the night before he was crucified. It's what he shed his blood for. And more, he said that this is the very way the world will know his love and that we're his. We're only really going to get the preservation of our unity rights when we get the preciousness of our unity right. And I, I think this is hard for us in this land of abundant Christians. There's so many churches here, so many Christians to choose from. We really, we really need the help of the global church 
to see our blind spots. We got so many of them. But I think one we have is that in this Christian Mecca, we often don't see the preciousness of what we have. One of my favorite questions to ask Christians in other countries is, what can the American church learn from believers here? I got to ask that question a lot last summer as we traveled abroad. And and so I asked my friend, my pastor friend from Croatia. He's lived in the States for years. He knows the American church pretty well. Take it from me. He's a solid brother. And so please, let's learn from him humbly. When, When I asked him, what can we learn from the Croatian church? What can we learn from the Croatian church? Without any other prompting, this is what he said. Loyalty to one another. Brother to brother, sister to sister. In Croatia, you don't have the luxury of not staying united on Jesus and staying loyal to one another, despite disagreements, because there are so few Christians. You need to stay together and not break over trivial things. When there are very few Christians to unite with, you break over very few things. You unite with them around Jesus and love and need for one another. It's almost as if my friend were saying, I've been rich and I've been poor. I've eaten with both. Poor people treat their food differently. Food isn't a luxury item to them. It's a necessity. And so they do everything to preserve every pea, every grain of rice. They make every effort to preserve every bite. Likewise, our our willingness to make every effort to preserve unity is dependent on us seeing that our relationships with, with, with other Christians are worth everything. So I think the question for us this morning is this. Do you see your fellow Christians more like a luxury item or a necessity? An optional extra if it's convenient or a non-negotiable you fight for? Maybe, Maybe you want to value fellowship like this, but you're afraid you've been hurt by relationships in the church with other Christians, and you feel like uh, those relationships are less of an asset, more of a liability. They're a threat. I know this can be, this can be super challenging. Others are starving for this. You've grown up watching Friends and Band of Brothers, and you're looking for these type of bonds, but then you get closer to people here, and you think, well, not them. <laughs> not now, not here. Some other people, maybe, some other place, some other time. Church, the right place to value fellowship right now is right here. Because this is where we're at. It's not out there. 
While the preservation project certainly involves keeping the unity between all Christians and, and, and the true, true churches, all true churches, the focus here is on preserving it in actual concrete relationships, not ones you used to have or want to have or, or wish to have one day. Pay attention. This unity we share that's already present here, it's indestructible. It's as indestructible as the, as the unity of our triune God. So think about this. Then why are we told to maintain something that's invoidable? It's because to preserve the church's unity means to preserve it visibly. To preserve it in relationships that actually exist. That the very ones that are visible right here, right now. Of course, this takes time. It takes risk, often hurt and mess. It, it takes commitment. But if the bonds we currently have in Christ indeed are precious to us, we'll do and give nothing less. We'll make every effort to preserve the oneness that Jesus gave. We must. This is the primary reason for this year's ministry theme. If we're going to keep our precious unity, we must learn to love cross-culturally because we're a diverse group from many different places and many different backgrounds. But the question remains, how do we do this exactly? Well, let's look at the fundamentals given here. Okay? The reality is that the best way to protect the unity is to reflect Jesus. The best way to protect is to reflect. Or as we've been saying, preserve the oneness Jesus gave through the practices of oneness Jesus lived. Okay, what, what are these precious or uh, these practices of oneness? Mainly humility, gentleness, and patience. These practices are so basic, there's nothing radically new here. But before you kind of check out because you've heard about these things since you were a kid, don't forget it's the fundamentals that win or lose trophies. It's true for veterans and rookies alike. And it's the basics that preserve our oneness. But also, take the counsel of one of our African church fathers, Augustine. He said, the Bible is shallow enough for a child not to drown, yet deep enough for an elephant to swim. Or from Charles Spurgeon, Nobody ever outgrows Scripture. The book widens and deepens with our years. That's true. This is true about gentleness, humility, and patience. They're simple enough for children not to drown, but wide enough for elephants to swim. They, they, they widen and deepen with each of our years. So, so please hang in with me, you veterans. Right before we, we get to these practices in verse 1, Paul, Paul urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. This is actually just a wide banner over the rest of the book, the, the last three chapters. He's, he's moving from describing this new society to declaring the new standards for that very society. He calls the church to live in a lifestyle that reflects their family name. We're Christ's ones. And he'll explain all kinds of things about Christian living, outlining 
how we relate to the world's goods and pleasures and, and various relationships like marriage, and lastly to spiritual warfare. But the very first way he characterizes this new lifestyle is with all humility and gentleness. Beginning with humility is not an accident. It's a very common theme for Paul. It means low-mindedness. C.S. Lewis argued, it's not so much thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Really, it's a, it's a self-forgetfulness for the sake of others. So, so humility doesn't allow us to be fixed on our own agenda or on demanding my rights or maneuvering for personal gain. It's self-forgetful. Not because I'm a worm or don't matter, but because you matter. And I'm set on treating you like it, to, to serve and advance you. Humility looks like grateful service because it's, it first recognizes that all I have, any gifting or maturity I possess, any way I differ from another is entirely of God's grace. It's just one big fat gift. And, and, and I've been given the gifts that I have so that I can use them to, to bless my brothers and sisters. So it's self-forgetfulness for the sake of others. Humility also looks like us not taking ourselves so darn seriously and thus being able to critique ourselves honestly. This, this also means that we should be able to fairly critique our own groups of people, whether it's our nation or our ethnic group we're from or our family. Instead of focusing on others and, and, and other groups out there, it's first drawing a circle around me and around my group, my family, and saying, growth's needed here with me, with us. Brothers and sisters, this thing called humility is not popular today. But here's the thing. It wasn't then either. I've read that Greeks never once used their word for humility in the context of approval or, admi or admiration, but only as a miserably compliant attitude. It was seen as pathetic. But then Jesus came onto the scene and he changed everything, for he, God himself, humbled himself He's the victorious king who came lowly or, or, or humble and riding on a donkey. Among all the world's religious and ethical gurus, he alone pointed to the little child as a model of what we should be like. Humility isn't a practice of the pathetic. It's a practice of oneness that Jesus himself lived. It's important. John Stott warned, pride lurks behind all discord, while the single greatest secret of concord is humility. You see, humility is unity's great practice because pride is unity's greatest villain. 
If pride is villain, humility is vital. So the chief way to protect our oneness is to reflect Jesus' own humility. So, so we must make every effort to pursue it. We must preserve the oneness Jesus gave us through the practices, the practice of humility Jesus lived. Okay, but, but when we get humility, we, we get more. It's, it's never alone. It's almost as if humility comes pregnant, always with twins. And the first baby it gives birth to is gentleness. This is probably why Paul pairs them here. Gentleness or, or meekness, it's similar to humility in that it, it's an expression of, of consideration. It, it, to be gentle is to consider another's feelings, their thoughts, their situation. It treats another person according to their, own, their frame, not being harsh or rough or loud, certainly not being aggressive. Its aim is care, nurture and restoration. So it doesn't seek to damage or, or break another, even if that person might deserve it. Gentleness makes me think of how Abraham Lincoln sought to treat the Confederate Army after they surrendered in the Civil War and, and the behavior he called the North to exhibit toward them. He concluded his second inaugural address like this, with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. Let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Lincoln was trying to bring a fractured people still in the midst of war, back together. Notice his tactic. Gentleness. What a tactic. With malice toward none? With charity for all? Let, it, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle? He's not focusing here just on the north. On one side, he's recognizing both sides have borne the battle. Both sides are fragile and need care. Okay, this shocking gentleness flowed into people like General Grant. After Grant signed the treaty in Appomattox with General Lee, he sent out this order to, to the North, who just won. The war is over. The rebels are our countrymen again. And the best sign of rejoicing after the victory will be to abstain from all demonstrations in the field. He's telling his people who fought for years, don't celebrate out on the field. Why? He saw the other soldiers as his reunified countrymen. And so he's being considerate of their plight. He's putting himself in their boots and so avoids humiliating them. He displayed the practice of gentleness that's so crucial for us in our preservation project, project of, of preserving our oneness. You know, the Bible only reports Jesus ever describing his own character one time. And this is, this is what he said. He said, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. 
You see, gentleness and humility, they're not just strategies Jesus used now and then. They're who he is at the deepest, most profound level. He's gentle and lowly in heart. Our peacemaker is gentle and lowly. No wonder he calls us, his peacekeepers, to the exact same because because the best way to protect is to reflect. And so we must make every effort to preserve the oneness Jesus gave through the the practice of gentleness Jesus lived. We must hurry to gentleness. We must race to gentleness. But there's one more practice here, patience. This is no surprise. Remember, humility comes pregnant with twins, and her second baby is patience. Our dictionary says it well. Bearing pains or trials calmly and without complaining or losing self-control. Refusing to be provoked or angered, able or willing to bear. And of course, he's not speaking of patience with things, but patience with people. The assumption here is that our fellow Christians need our patience. And and, and notice patience is described a little further here. It says, with patience, bearing with one another in love. This bearing with one another is just another way of highlighting the endurance that's implicit in patience. It means we don't only need to forgive others. We don't need need to forgive others' sins. We need to put up with things that just bother us. Because people are not just sinful, people are strange. (laughs) On a number of occasions, Bob Hughes, who, who used to pastor here, he warned me. He said, they're all strange except you and me, Caleb. I thought, okay, sweet. He'd pause. After a pause, he'd lean in and say, I'm not so sure about you. I think he probably did this with multiple people. So this is funny, but it's it's everyone's experience. We, We think everyone else is strange. Don't let this surprise you. This is part of the mess of the church. It's the mess of all relationships, really. This week, one of my dearest friends was describing patience to me by equating it to the fuse on dynamite. Okay, having a short fuse is a picture of impatience, while having a long fuse is a picture of patience. What does it take for you to get bothered, to complain, to get angry and lose self-control, maybe become disrespectful or mean? How are you treating others whom you're feeling wronged by today? Are you stuck in bitterness? Resentment? Giving them the cold shoulder? Maybe they'll get it then. Do you have a short fuse or a long one? One, Growing the length of your fuse is so very important to protect what we all share. We need, we need to bear with one another in love. And so this in love means we don't just wait for the other. This, this patience in love, it's active. It's, it's consistently engaging and not withdrawing. We, we heard about this a lot a few weeks ago in, in 1 Corinthians 13. 
Love is patience, but patience is active. Why do, why do I say this? Because Jesus himself is an embodiment of love. He's an embodiment of patience, but he initiates too. He, he, it seems like he's always going first. Likewise, this patience and love initiates while it waits, while it endures. And so listen, we're, we're all in process, and when it comes to learning to love cross-culturally, specifically, we're all in different places for different reasons. Some of us are ready, some of us are reluctant, some of us are resistant. Craig mentioned uh, this on Vision Sunday. He said, patience is not requiring the others to move at our speed. And, and this is just really not, no different from the way Jesus acted. He was patient with his diverse disciples. He was, he was patient with Thomas's doubts. He was patient with the fury of John and James. He was patient with the wrong political views of Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. He was patient with Peter's compulsiveness. His patience was key to him building his diverse disciples into a unified family. If we're to make every effort to maintain our unity, we'll do likewise. We'll pursue patience, both active love and also growing the length of our fuses. Because the best way to protect is to reflect. And so we must preserve the oneness Jesus gave through the practice of patience Jesus lived. The movie 42 about the life of Jackie Robinson, has a really good teaching moment about all these practices of oneness we've discussed. Ricky, the owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers, is sitting with Jackie, inviting him to break the color barrier in professional baseball by joining the team and becoming uh, the first black player in the league. He gives Jackie quite a generous offer, but then he, but then he kind of surprisingly begins antagonizing him with, with a bunch of ridiculous the probably likely scenarios he'll face because so many people will hate this. And, and he asks Jackie, what are you going to do then? And then he insults him intentionally, aiming low, calling him a demeaning name based on his color. Jackie stands up quickly out of his seat. It's a, it's a ten, tense moment. And looking angrily, he's... he's kind of like he's going to hit this boss. He, he asked, you want a player who doesn't have the guts to fight back? Ricky stands there, cool, even though Jackie could knock his lights out, and calmly but, but firmly responds, no. No. I want a player who has the guts not to fight back. And Ricky goes on, he says, your enemy will be out in full force and you cannot meet him on his own low ground. We win with hitting, running, field, only that. Those are the fundamentals. We win if the world is convinced of two things, that you are a fine gentleman and a great baseball player. Like our Savior, you have to have the guts to turn the other cheek. Can you do it? A bit startled, Jackie answers. You give me a uniform. You put a number on my back. 
and I'll give you the guts. And the rest, of course, is history, folks. Listen, the world says humility, gentleness, and patience are for the weak. They're practices for the pathetic who don't have the guts. But the Bible says the exact opposite, that practicing humility, gentleness, and patience is the sign that you have the guts. Jesus has put you in the team uniform. He's put a number on our back. So the question is, do you have the guts? And of course, when we really take a good look in the mirror, we realize, maybe with appropriate tears, that we don't. We, we don't have the guts. Or, or, or is this just me? Is this just me or are we all proud men and women who far from forgetting ourselves for the sake of others are self-obsessed? We assert our agenda even passively. We demand our rights, and it seems like we're always maneuvering to get the advantage, to get what we want. And then we're harsh with people who get in our way, whether it's with our words or our thoughts with a smiling face. We demand our rights, and it seems like instead of putting ourselves in other shoes, we see them as in our way. We love efficiency more than God loves it. And so we're impatient with the inefficiency of relationships. We just avoid them or, or, or drop them. No, you and I don't have the guts. And if we're honest, we'll also admit that no self-improvement project has ever been able to give us the guts. We need someone else to change us. And church, this, this is exactly what the good news of Jesus does. You see, even in our pride and arrogance, Jesus is humble with you. Even as you're rough with others, Jesus is gentle with you. While you're still being impatient with those around you today because of where they're at, Jesus is patient with you exactly where you're at. It's true. We're never going to be able to protect the precious oneness Jesus gave unless we reflect the practices of oneness Jesus lived but we're never going to be able to reflect them unless we first know that these are not just good ideas or ideals that Jesus modeled for us to follow. They're the very way he relates to us now. Know this. Experience this awesome reality. Jesus, the king of the universe, is humble and lowly of heart, and he humbles himself for you, even to the, to the point of going to the cross, his death for your life. Jesus, the strongest being that exists, is tender and gentle with you. He knows your frame and a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Jesus, the perfect God, man, who perfectly knows all your imperfect ways and thoughts, is patient with you. Know this. Experience this. Only then will you be able to go and reflect it. Now, this isn't my idea. This is the idea. This is the logic of the entire letter. The big therefore that starts our text comes immediately after Paul is telling his readers about how he just prayed for them. At the end of chapter 3, he says that this is how he prayed for them. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love 
may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Keep going in the letter. Paul starts off Ephesians 5 with the same logic. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved you, loved us and gave himself up for us. The good news reality is that we're far worse than we ever dared to, to think. But we're far more loved than we ever dared to imagine. It's this love of Jesus that makes it possible for us to live this life that reflects Jesus. Know this. Experience this. I can't only then go and reflect it. And know this too, that we got even more We're still not on our own. We have the Spirit. The Spirit doesn't only bind us together. He lives in us to help us know and experience this reality that we're loved. And the Spirit points us back to the love of Jesus over and over again. And then he animates each of us to be like him. You could say it this way. The Spirit gives us the guts we don't have. He puts the guts of Jesus inside of us, that the heart of Jesus, which is gentle and lowly, is transplanted into us and is now our own. And so, yes, we we must make every effort to preserve the oneness Jesus gave through the practices of oneness Jesus lived. But never forget, the life Jesus lived, he lived for you, to come to you and love you and give himself for you. And he's put his spirit in you to help you know it and experience it and reflect it today. So so as we get ready to sing, let's follow this biblical exhortation. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.